I'm pulling my driveway. We all know what that means. It's time for the drive to work. Okay, so today I'm going to talk about one of my hobbies and how I've applied a lot of lessons I've learned from that hobby to magic design. So the hobby is party throwing. So um, my wife and I, uh, Laura, my wife, we have um, been together since since '96. Um, so we've been together a long time. And one of the things we learned very early on is that both of us enjoyed throwing parties. Um, obviously, we throw birthday parties for the co-host of Lucky Paper Radio, Anthony. Happy birthday, Anthony. One plus one plus one is seventh heaven. It's Lucky Paper Radio. I'm your host, Andy, and I'm here with my co-host, Anthony, birthday boy Maddox. Happy early birthday, Anthony. Hey, happy birthday to you too, Andy. Hey, wait a minute. Hold on. Hold on. Pump the brakes. It's not my birthday, actually. Mine's not for a while, but it is coincidentally. We're recording this on Friday. Your birthday's tomorrow, Saturday, and then we found out that Sunday is uh, Lucky Paper Contributor Jet's birthday. It'll be a whole birthday bonanza. What are the chances, Anthony? What are the chances? We're all becoming olds. Do you understand that birthday paradox? Can you explain it to me? Uh, what's the birthday paradox? The birthday paradox is that thing that basically says, you know, in order for you to have more likelihood of having two people share two birthdays in a group of people than not, you need substantially fewer people than most people expect. I mean, my way to summarize those kinds of weird statistical questions, and we should ask a different Lucky Paper contributor to to give a better answer, but like... How much more likely, or how, how equally unlikely is it for everyone to have unique birthdays? Yeah, that is the way it's been described to me, too, and it still feels like it's, like it's not, like it should be less probable. So do you want to guess right now, if you're not looking at the Wikipedia page, how many people do you think you need until you have a greater chance of having a pair of the same birthday rather than not? Uh, I'm going to guess 60. 23. Jesus. Okay. Right? It's really low. It's not that many it's people. It's really low. I still don't really get it. It's still kind of confusing to me. Anyway, I'll put the birthday paradox Wikipedia page in the show notes. We almost had a lucky paper birthday paradox. Among only four contributors, we had two almost sharing a birthday, but not quite. Any birthday plans, Anthony? I'm really excited. I think I'm going to scrub the stove. Um, What was the other thing I wanted to do? There's something else very exciting along those lines. Stove cleaning. Stove cleaning. We know what we should do now, Anthony. We should record a podcast for your birthday, because that's what the people demand. A podcast about magic. And Cube, in fact. If that's what we want, shit. If that's what they want, we can't refuse. (laughs) Uh, Maybe I'll add that out, maybe not. We'll see. Hey, it's my birthday. I'm having an identity crisis. Am I me, or am I you? All right, let's go ahead and just move on to our (laughs) Pack One, Pick One segment. Every week on the show, we do a Pack One, Pick One from a listener-submitted cube. And this week's cube comes to us from listener Forest 716 This is a three-color focused cube, so it's trying to encourage three-color decks and emphasize the shards and the wedges. And Anthony, you'll be delighted to see a huge number of gold cards in this list. 119 of the 360 cards in this list are gold. I know that makes you happy. you love to see it. You do love to see it. You really, truly do. I'm going to read the pack. Anthony is going to tell us what are the leading contenders for him, for his pack one, pick one. His birthday, pack one, pick one. The pack right, you're, is... You're, you're leaning on the birthday stuff a little too hard. We didn't need birthday, to bring it up. Birth, look, I, I had nothing else prepared. I just got to keep saying that over and over again. The pack is Thoughtseize, Phylath World Sculptor, Cloudblazer, Disenchant, Scapeshift, Hallowed Fountain, Lenoir Elves, Aloro Ageless Ascetic, Breeding Pool, Skull Clamp, Monastery Mentor, Prismatic Vista, Oko, Thief of Crowns, Orcish Lumberjack, and Polluted Delta. I'm seeing a lot of powerful cards in this pack. Anthony, what is jumping out at you? There are a lot of powerful cards, and there's also a pretty big difference in terms of power level that I see. Before we go too deep into it, have you ever actually played with Orcish Lumberjack in Cube? I have not, though I have thought about it quite a bit. If this was not actually a gold card, I would be so into it, because I love tempo-forward plays like this. For those not familiar with it, Orcish Lumberjack is red for a 1-1, summon orc, 
And it has an ability, tap to sacrifice a forest and add three mana, any combination of red and or green to your mana pool. So it's like a repeatable dark ritual that instead costs you a land instead of a spell. And can, you know, on turn two, ramp out a four drop very reliably or pretty reliably. If you're in exactly red green, this is it's that if you're in exactly red green that keeps me from trying it in my own environment. Right, but but this cube is specifically trying to push us to play multicolor decks. Um, right. So let's just say like that's the card that I look at and I'm like I think this card is much more powerful than I think it is, but I haven't really had a lot of experience with it, so I'm, I'm I'll wait for it to be proven to me. So aside from that, the three cards that really stand out to me are Skull Clamp, Oko, and Polluted Delta. You're much higher in Polluted Delta than a Prismatic Vista at this stage. Uh, I think so. That's a what's good your, question. What's your um, reasoning there? Just that there's enough fetchable lands that you think that's going to be playable in any color of deck? Or, or what? What's, what's well, your so I'm thinking specifically, that? like, if, the, if I'm expecting to play three color, even though it only fetches two, uh, sure, two colors, sure, sure, sure. it's both going to double fix me for two colors and is much more likely to make my main deck. So that's why I like it more specifically in this context. Yeah, I think in most, in if I'm expecting to play a two-color deck, I think I probably like Prismatic Vista more. I'm looking at a very similar suite of cards, so I would put Prismatic Vista up there in contention too. I'll also throw Thoughtseize in the mix. I mean, Thoughtseize is always a great card. Uh, this is just a black mana to make your opponent discard a card of your choice, and it's not a land card, and you lose two life. And I think that that card might shine in an environment where people are playing greedier decks on average uh, oh, you know if you can if you can thought tease your opponent and take one of the only two cards they can cast until they draw their third color of mana or something it can be even more of a big setback um, what are the cards here that go down in value for you knowing that this is an environment pushing us towards three color decks can, can everything any. just go up is that how games work I, i'll say i think i put lenoir elves more low in an environment where I think we're all going to be playing three-color decks. Not to say that I mean, I'm to, unhappy. To, to your point about Orcus Lumberjack, like, if we're all playing three-color decks, it's going to tend to be less about tempo, I think, than just about value. So I, I think both those uh, cards, just as pure tempo cards, uh, take a little bit of a hit. Yeah, that and... Yeah, I, I agree. That and I think that there's probably a lot of fixing in green. I'm looking at the list now, so you can probably play a base green, splash lots of other colors kind of list, or any of the base green tricolor pairs with Lanoir Elves. But, you know, in a regular cube, it fits into those decks as well, but also can be part of a mono green super ramp deck or something. And that's not going to come together here, it looks like, from the makeup of this list. So I'm a little lower on that. You know, this is a really hard pick. Um, so what are you actually taking? You're looking at Delta, Oko, and Skull Clamp. I'm pretty much looking at the same cards. I would probably take Vista over Delta, probably. And I think Thoughtseize is in the same stratosphere, but what are you actually going to take, though? So I think I'm actually, like, in, in general, in my own card evaluations, a little bit high on Skull Clamp in these high-powered environments. So I think I'm going to tune myself a little bit and stay away from Skull Clamp. I think I'm just going to take Oko because I don't want to look at... Or I just don't want to hear the response of the person to my left when they say, You passed Oko? <laughs> I mean, that's a reason. I'm, I'm going to say the same. Not for that reason. I, I do think Oko is... <laughs> You know, we've talked about how there are a suite of cards in most cubes that are better than even premium fixing, and pretty much no matter what the cube is at, at whatever power level. I think this pack has two or arguably three in Oko, Skull Clamp, and maybe Thoughtseize, depending on your predilections. I don't think we have to read Oko's rules text. I think people know that card, or Skull Clamp, I hope. So yeah, I think I'm just going to take Oko. Given that there's three-color deck supported, I'm expecting that there's not going to be super duper aggressive decks which is probably where oko is the least effective though he's still quite good in that matchup and in anything resembling some kind of board stally mid-range mirror or any kind of grindy game oko is near impossible to beat i would say so i'm quite high on him and i'll just i'll just take him here all right let's do it anthony we did it we didn't pack one pick one of fetch even though there were two in the pack wow aren't you proud so of us? i should i should put a little asterisk and say if I was trying to really like lean into this cube and uh, embrace what the cube designer is doing, we should probably just take Scapeshift, right? Like, no one puts Scapeshift in a cube just incidentally. I mean, that doesn't mean I'm going to take it, <laughs> but I hear what you're saying. Like, you're, you're saying Scapeshift jumps out of this pack. Scapeshift is too green-green for a sorcery that says sacrifice any number of lands and then search your library for up to that many land cards and put them onto the battlefield tapped, then shuffle your library. So you're paying four mana and a card to not increase your board presence at all. You're going to sacrifice some lands and replace them with that many lands from your library. 
but this card is notorious for having various combos and synergies and build arounds that make it relevant in constructed. So you're saying this card kind of stands out because you would normally not expect it to be something you would want in a cube where you can play Thoughtseize and Oko and Skullclamp. But you're saying if it's in this list, you could trust the designer and say, well, it must be here for a reason. Let's, let's see what I can do. Gotta be here for a reason. I'm looking at the list now. Let's see. So Gruul seems to have a little bit of a, a landfall thing going on, but not so many that I'm going to be thrilled to play Escape Shift, I don't think. Jund has some sacrifice stuff, which of course... But see, you're making a mistake. Triggers. You're looking at the list. We need to trust in the designer and trust in the heart right, of the fine. cards. <laughs> I don't know the pack. I'm still not taking that. I'm taking Oko. Take but Oko. I hear what you're okay. saying. Uh, that was a great birthday pick, Anthony, for your birthday. Pack one, wow. pick one on this, this birthday episode of Lucky Paper Radio. Incredibly Thank you, Forest716, for sending in your cube. If you want to get on our queue to have your cube drafted on Lucky Paper Radio on the air, you can mail it to mail at luckypaper.co and include your pronouns, include a link to your cube, and we'll do it on air. Small note, if you send us an email with your cube list and then you change your cube's ID on Cube Cobra, your link will break, and I will no longer have a link to your cube. So just keep that in mind when you're changing that cube ID. Not to say you can't change it if you don't want, but just, just be aware, you know? It's, it's, a, it's a thing you should know. Anthony, this week, we're going to talk a little bit about restrictions as kind of our, our light theme. I want to start with this message from a listener. Not all uncommons are created equal. Cards like Channel, Soul Ring, and Library of Alexandria would never be printed today, and especially not at uncommon. Skull Clamp was clearly a huge mistake. To avoid power outliers like these, I've been using the established Legacy Ban List for my Peasant Cube. The Legacy Ban List has made a lot of sense to help curate a fun and balanced environment for my list. But this last week, Arkham's Astrolabe was banned in Legacy. The card is definitely a design mistake for Constructed, but it's totally fine and reasonable for Cube. It's causing me to reevaluate the best way to make a ban list for Peasant. Glad that in the end, for Cube, the best approach is the way that makes the most fun environment for any given group. I think the ban list should reflect the goals of the cube. So I'd love to know how and if you form ban lists for cube and which commons and uncommons you think push the power level too far for peasant. I think it's really interesting. And I think I want to sort of point out the distinction that uh, he's making between like, you know, we've, we've joked about banning cards from cube in the past, but obviously no cards are banned from cube. That's one of the best things about the format. But there is still a, a reasonable and important distinction between cards that you're not including because they are like actively destructive or sort of like they cross a line in sort of your, your design goals that you don't want to include them versus cards that you're not including just because they, they don't quite make the cut. So it's like there's all these great five mana red dragons. I could include any one of them. It doesn't mean the other ones are banned or like are unreasonable and I would never consider them. It just means, well, I had to pick one. And in this particular context, there is this kind of weird restriction in these sort of rarity-restricted cubes where like, the, the design of magic cards has changed drastically in the last, uh, how many, 26 years? That some of the cards just don't fit anymore into the same sort of design philosophy. Uh, and as much as some people, I think, enjoy that about these rarity-restricted cubes where they can play this like interesting, like very stretched power delta because there are these outliers, I think there's a very good line of logic to just excluding those power outliers to try and fit with a more uh, unified design philosophy. Yeah, there's a couple of questions here, and I think the first thing to address is just why use the legacy band list at all, right? Like, we're playing cube. We don't have to adhere to any formal band lists, so... It sounds like Nate is using the legacy ban list as a sort of shorthand to say, well, some of these uncommon cards were just mistakes, and I, I know they're mistakes enough if they make it all the way out of his ban list, but now he's presented with this first obvious example of a card that he knows to not be a problem in his environment, Arkham's Astrolabe, which I would agree, Arkham's Astrolabe is a very good rate for a card, but it's certainly not broken, no one's going to win the game on the back of Arkham's Astrolabe, so it's probably a totally fine inclusion in Singleton in a drafted environment. It's very easy for us to say, do whatever is, is makes sense for your cube, and that's all that matters. And at the end of the day, that's true. You shouldn't hold yourself to any limitation arbitrary or not if you think that something else is going to better serve whatever your goals are and so the easy answer for nate is just keep astrolabe in pretend you never saw that band of restricted announcement and your life can go on because you know it to not be a problem 
But I think that it's worth underscoring why so many cube designers like Nate do adhere to some semblance of ban lists uh, and, and the sort of value of that because designing a cube is such an incredibly complicated task. I, I was having this conversation the other day in one of the sort of custom cards channels. We were talking about just balancing a single card, right? And we always give the example of Lightning Bolt because it's very simple. You know, one mana, instant speed, three damage. You can think of on that very, very simple card, you can think of so many knobs to turn, right? We could make it sorcery speed. We could increase the mana cost. We could increase the decrease the amount of damage it can do. We could change the legal targets for the card. We could set some casting restriction on it or some additional cost in the style of the call time cards like exile creature card from your graveyard to cast a spell or something. There's all kinds of knobs you can turn. And for any given environment, you can turn those knobs and try and dial it in so that Lightning Bolt is like fair and balanced. It's the right power level. It's not a big outlier in either direction. It's very playable. When you design a cube, you're selecting a card, and you can kind of, it's not a linear curve like turning a knob, but you can kind of think of every single slot in your cube as turning a knob. It's, it's affecting your environment and what's playable and not playable. And if you start out with no preconceptions, you're like, my cube can be anything. I'm not going to aim for the highest power level within a certain restriction. I'm not going to have any restrictions. I'm not going to say I'm going to be singleton. I'm not going to say I'm going to be peasant. I'm not going to say I'm going to adhere to the legacy band list. There is so, so many options that I think it is genuinely overwhelming. You, like it's, you need some very strong seed for where to start to actually have, to be able to place the first tile on the cube, right? And then have that grow from there. And so I think if you have a very, very, very clear vision for what you want your cube to be. And, you know, I can give the example of, like, the Turbo Cube, for example, is a very clear vision to me. It's like, we have this novel rules change. The vision is explore the variety of cards that are totally broken or modified by this rules change and how they might interact with each other. And from that, you don't need any other restrictions, really, to guide that. You can just kind of It's It's start. really funny to me that you bring that up, because I feel like of all of the cubes that I've designed, which is seven or eight at this point, that was one of the more challenging ones for me. You think because of this lack of any kind of restriction? Yeah, I mean, there it just felt like there was not such a seed. Uh, I mean, to to go back for a second, I feel like something you sort of sort of hinted at was like we never want to tell you like this is the right way to do a cube. Cube should be this thing, and to say like you should do whatever is right for your cube and not fall too hard on your restrictions is kind of intimidating and overwhelming. To say like oh yeah, just ignore that you can do anything. And and just leaning right, it's back kind of like on... saying draw the fucking owl, right? It's, it's yeah, like yeah, just someone like, asks, how do I do draw an owl? Right. It's yeah, like, what, like start with two you... circles, and then you draw the rest of the fucking owl. Just do it. So you know, it's sort of like when we talk about heuristics. Like it might be a less optimal in you know what whatever kind of abstract way we want to describe the optimal cube design to meet whatever set of goals is to say, well, I'm just going to use this list of uh, restrict restrictions from this constructed format. But that can definitely be the higher value approach for your you know experience like to to say you're not going to worry that much about it because you're going to get 90 percent of the benefit of just using this ban list or this restricted list to get the the list of cards that you're going to pick from just might save you enough time or mental effort or just you know let you focus on what's actually interesting to you that that's right. a completely reasonable strategy and, and for your benefit i think i'm looking at the legacy restricted list right now and there are other uncommons that could be considered for Nate's list that presumably sure. right now are banned. So I'm looking at stuff like Mystical Tutor, stuff like Sensei's Divining Top, Gush, Treasure Cruise. So, you, so you're missing out on a couple cards, but at the same time, you're, you're making up for it in terms of there are all these conversations you don't have to have when your players are like, well, why aren't you playing Gush? It really should be here. That, but also, like, I don't want to minimize the amount of time it would take to determine if Gush was a problem in a peasant cube. <laughs> like, Absolutely, I, yeah. I don't think it would be a matter of a playtest or a couple of playtests. I think for you to get to the point where you were like, this is actually warping my environment in a unhealthy way, as opposed to being a powerful draw to be in blue or a compelling build around or something that is serving one of your actual goals, it would be a ton of work. And so... You are actually shortcutting a ton of work by saying, and I presume, maybe we're wrong about this, I presume Nate's cube, using this ban list, the way it was presented to us, I assume that Nate is pushing the power limits of Peasant Cube, right? Playing kind of the best uncommons he can within this restriction of no cards on the legacy ban list. Now, I would argue that a card like Gush is very similar to Arkham's Astrolabe in that it is not the kind of card who 
in which a big power level delta is going to cause a huge problem. Some of these cards, I think, would be totally fine inclusions, but but to your point, just having that shorthand and saying, this is my ban list, is a great place to start to, to make some progress, because otherwise you find yourself unmoored in this sea of potential options, and not only is it that testing any one of these cards would be a lot of work to determine whether or not it was actually too powerful or not, but then also, if you determine, all right, this card's actually fine, that moved the goalposts in some way. Maybe that card being fine for your environment and being at the higher end of the power level curve, but still within the realm of what you consider an acceptable delta, means that other cards in your cube are now evaluated differently, or other cards you already excluded months ago before this card were in now are contextualized differently and need to be reconsidered. And so this is like, it's just like treadmill feedback loop where every change changes the cube, and now you have to rethink of all the other things you already thought of because now the cube is a different cube. I mean, we're getting deep. Like, that—that that is what is fun for most of us about Cube, right? I think so. I mean, this is, like, totally hokey, but I, I really love that famous quote from the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, which is that no man steps in the same river twice because it's not the same river and it's not the same man, which is just the point that, you know, a river is not oh a God, fixed that's thing. So, that's the, so hokey. It, it, it's cheesy, but I, I really do love that quote. And to me, I think Cube is very similar. Your Your players are different players every time they draft it so are you and your cube is also different every time you swap even one card out it is now a somewhat different environment and it's very easy as we talked about with our boiled frogs language to make a series of very small changes where the delta between the cube before and after the change is only a very small a small step but you do many many small steps over six months or 12 months and now your cube is radically different and you didn't stop to reevaluate every card that was just kind of gliding on your good graces and didn't go noticed by you that's why i think that restrictions are so prevalent in the cube community because absent them it can be very hard to know where to draw lines for yourself now that said coming back to nate's specific question you know nate is a listener to our show I know Nate to be a relatively experienced Magic player, have his cube for a while. I would say, Nate, that I think this was a great starting point for you, and if you want my subjective opinion on what you should do, I think you should ignore the legacy ban list, because I think you have a good enough grasp on your environment that you can look at Treasure Cruise, Sensei's Divining Top, Arkham's Astrolabe, and decide for yourself, are these cards too good for my environment, or do they add something that I think will be interesting to, to include in my environment? I think you're kind of past that point where you're really benefiting from that restriction. And I think that's what caused this message, right? Like, I think I think you kind of know that, otherwise you wouldn't have asked. You'd be like, yeah, well, it's banned now. It's coming out of my cube. But you were like, well, wait a minute. It's totally fine. Why can't I just keep it? I mean, I think there's actually two sort of aspects to this question. One of them is just the fact that, like, cube is not constructed. We're, we're playing a singleton environment. It's a draft environment. You're not going to end up with all of these cards in the same deck. So the problem with a card like Arkham's Astrolabe just does not come up in cube at all, right? It is not warping the format. It's not forcing you to play weird basic lands. It's not enabling these like bonkers five-color decks that are only playing basics so they don't have the uh, the restriction of playing against Blood Moon. Like, none of that is relevant. And again, like this is all with a caveat that... like playing with that ban list makes sense and offers you a lot of value, but if we're going to be critical, it's clear that this is a different format. I said two things, didn't I? I think you might have, but I forgot already, so I'm sure our listeners did too. The other thing is that (laughs) you're not trying to curate the same format. Like, if you're comfortable with a higher power level delta, that's fine. Um, So it's not just a matter of trying to draw the cleanest lines and saying, like, well, these cards are banned in Legacy because of power level, so... We need to restructure that for our peasant cube environment. You can also just say, like, this one card, which is going to be played in, you know, a certain number of games per draft, that's not going to be overwhelming, but it is power level. Uh, Sorry, it is very powerful. That's completely fine for you to just say that you enjoy that and that's worth, worth including. So I don't think it's just a matter of drawing lines around power level either. Sometimes when I see a legacy cube, it's clear that it's a designer who is just adhering to the legacy ban list, and that's where they got the name legacy cube, right? They're saying I'm excluding power and all these other cards because they're not legal and legacy. That's the guiding restriction for my cube. I have also seen cubes that were called legacy cubes where it was clear the intent was for this cube to play like the meta of constructed legacy. And if I'm not getting my listeners confused, I believe that Nate has described his own peasant cube in that way, or like basically wanted his peasant cube to play like Legacy from a few years ago or something, you know, before all these sort of new cards got injected into the format and things got shaken up. So that is another reason to use a ban list, right? Like if you actually want 
your cube to resemble the constructed decks that are prevalent in that format as much as it can within a drafted environment, then you would might might want to exclude cards that would create new kinds of decks that do not fit in that meta, even if they're not too powerful, right? Even if when they're drafted, they're significantly less powerful than if when they're in a constructed deck, that is still a reason you might adhere to that restriction. Yeah, I mean, it is, the more I think about it, the more it's challenging because constructed plays out so differently and you can't like build a deck around individual cards in a singleton environment the same way you can in a constructed format. Sometimes if you are trying to emulate the play patterns of a specific constructed format, in my experience... Oftentimes that involves playing cards that are not even remotely present in that environment. And the best example I can give of this is just, you know, the Degenerate Microcube did not explicitly start out as a goal to emulate constructed vintage. It was just trying to see how broken I could make 15-card decks in general. And it just so happened that there was a lot of overlap with the vintage metagame and I ended up learning a lot about those decks from, from looking at those lists and watching some vintage matches. But... Given that it is still Singleton and it is a different format, I found that there were actually cards that were viable in my cube that were not viable in Vintage, but still contributed to the vintage feeling of the environment because of the tempo ramifications, because of how threatening they were, because of how they forced you to think about keeping or mulling hands. Like They caused you to make the same kind of decisions you might have to make in Constructed Vintage, even though the actual cards themselves were totally different cards. And so... That's a question for you to ask yourself, Nate, is what is it you like about this era of legacy you're trying to replicate? Is it that you really like those specific cards and strategies, or is it that that particular era of legacy led to a kind of gameplay that is something you're trying to to pay homage to, and that might involve playing cards that weren't present in the meta at all? I've always come back to your cube, Anthony, which you describe as a kind of like peasant cube, even though you include a fair number of rare cards, you know, those rare cards might, in many cases, play just like uncommons for all intents and purposes. Yeah, I mean, especially we're talking like the uncommon legends from Dominaria and beyond. Uh, those all would have been rare if they were printed a year earlier. Right. So I think that's my advice for Nate. With the information I have, Nate, I think you should abandon the legacy ban list in your peasant cube and go forward with your knowledge as a designer and make the decision that's right for your environment. But if you're listening to this and you don't feel like you have as good of a grasp on your environment or you're just starting a cube, I would be more likely to take up a restriction because it gives you a place to start and it gives you a thing you can say is a kind of a pillar, right? If you say, I'm playing this ban list, therefore I'm excluding these cards, but I'm playing all the cards that just, you know, are right below that power level, right? Like I'm, I'm not playing, I can't even think of peasant cards that are close to being banned in Legacy, but aren't. But you know what I mean. Whatever the best cards in Peasant are, your, <laughs> your Lightning Bolts or whatever, uh, you, know, you know you want those cards to be playable. And that gives you a pillar, right? So now you get to compare any new card that you consider including against the cards that you have some indication you know are going to be for sure in your environment. And that pillar, I think, is so important to beginning this feedback loop that is cube design, where you are constantly adding and removing in this whole thing is just a spinning gyre of changes in cards and you get to write it out and you may find yourself three years down the line you know cutting those cards and in a totally different place but to get started down that path i think it's really helpful to have solid footing and restrictions provide that i think it's it's not worth it for arkham's astrolabe though no one likes this card don't play it i like arkham wait you love prophetic prism you're saying you don't like arkham's astrolabe just because yeah it why is it gotta say prophetic snow. prisms territory i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say like oh although i'm gonna add this complete exception all of my basics are this totally different thing just so you can play a discounted prophetic prism okay to be fair nate may play a ton of snow cards for all we know still hate it <laughs> i i have that problem right now in the degenerate microcube i have two snow cards in the entire cube it's arkham's astrolabe and on thin ice and both cards are just one mana upgrades over other cards that do essentially exactly the same thing. And I can't decide if it's worth keeping snow just for that reason. I mean, just take a Sharpie. Just just take your Prophetic Prism, cross out the two, put a zero there. I don't care. You already have Arkham's Astrolabe, though. Here's what it does do, Anthony, though. It keeps me from going down a rabbit hole of acquiring exotic basics for my degenerate microcube if they're snow basics then i just get the ice age original snow basics and call it a day interesting interesting you you don't want the eldraine secret lair snow basics no i don't like those huh yucky huh i like old cards i like the i like the look of old cards it feels nostalgic to me all right nate 
I hope that was helpful. Nate, you also asked a much harder question, which I think we're going to maybe breeze over, which is just how do you decide when a card is too good for Peasant Cube? And I mean, transparently, I've never designed a Peasant Cube. Anthony, you have not either, correct? Uh, Correct. So that's a really big question of just how do you know when a card is too powerful for a cube? And I think that comes down to playtesting, taking that playtesting and turning it into explanatory knowledge of your environment. Like if you had this experience playing a card, was that indicative of its normal play patterns or was it an exception? Is that its ceiling or is that its normal case outcome? And using that to weigh it against all of the other explanatory knowledge you have about all the other cards in the environment and deciding if whatever delta is present is within your range of acceptable power level delta for your environment. And that's a very hard question. So I'm going to stick with the easy question, which is, uh, yeah, keep playing Arkham's Astrolabe and maybe put a gush in there too. Some of the cards that seem way, way pushed for peasant environments are just the extremely efficient removal, like we're, we're talking about Swords to Plowshares and Path to Exile, where we, we just wouldn't see these printed in modern design. But I they mean, aren't just to push back a little bit, Fatal Push and Blood Chief's Thirst are not that far off, in my opinion, from Swords to Plowshares and Path to Exile. That's true. They're but a I different color. Like... We would never see that in white now, I totally agree. And so if, yeah. if the color pie is a consideration, then sure. But... I think those cards have a little bit more of an air of high power because they are like the cream of the crop. And so that's what you do see in Constructed Legacy or you do see in EDH, for example. But I actually think that they're only a little bit better than the cards just be- just below the cream of the crop, uh, which don't show up in Constructed as much or are only ever so slightly worse in drafted singleton environments. Sure. I mean, but more importantly, I think it's it's worth just noting, like, those cards are uh, above sort of above par just because they're a little bit more mana efficient. They don't actually shape the game in a way that it's like, oh, you just suddenly have three more cards than me and that's going to, I can't win now. So I, I think it's much more reasonable in rarity restricted context just, just to include these hyper efficient cards much more than it is to include these cards that just generate a ton of card advantage and really take over the game in themselves. So I'd be much more willing to include those efficient removal uh, as opposed to something like Treasure Cruise. I do have uh, Nate's list here, which I can send over to you, but some of the cards I'm seeing immediately jump out are like, this cube has Mother of Runes in it, which is a pretty pushed uncommon, I would say. But similarly, like that, that card doesn't, it doesn't really break the philosophy of commons and uncommons, right? Uh, I mean, it kind of breaks the philosophy of anything they put on any magic card at any rarity these days, I would argue. Do you not think so? It's, it's, it's tough. I'll paste uh, Nate's cube list here. The cards jumping out at me as being some of the most cards Nate does include in Peasant are cards like Mother of Runes, Palace Jailer, Animate Dead. Though that card does go down in power level when everything is commons and uncommons. Young Pyromancer seems up there for me. Him to Turok for sure. That card is oof, very, very, very good. Grafted War Gear. So like all of these cards I think are kind of head and shoulders above something like Arkham's Astrolabe or a lot of the cards that show up on the legacy ban list in most I think I think Ancient Tomb stands out to me more than any of those. Oh, is Ancient Tomb in here? See, I have, I have it sorted by ELO because I thought it was a pretty quick way to just, you know. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Yeah, I've, there's two columns here. of There's two separate rows of ELO, and the number one card is, yeah, Ancient Tomb. Woof. Woof, Ancient Tomb. Yeah, Lightning Bolt, Counterspell Remand, Ponder, Preordained Force of Will. Yeah, Wasteland 2, City of Brass. Yeah, these are all very good cards. So City of Brass is maybe a better example where, like, it might be one of the most powerful cards in the cube, but it is not in any case backbreaking. It's not the card that you're going to see your opponent play and think, well, I just can't win this game anymore. And so I, I don't think it is unhealthy in terms of like damaging gameplay. I agree. Thank you, Nate, for sending in that voice memo question. If you want to have your question answered on the air on Lucky Paper Radio, you can mail a voice memo to mail at luckypaper.co. I hope some of what we said was helpful. The other thing I want to talk about, Anthony, is there was a video posted to the subreddit this week that caused some conversation, and the video was titled, Should Cubes Be Singleton? For me, it's kind of impossible to talk about the topic of power level without bringing up singleton. 
But Jason's point is really just encouraging cube designers to break singleton because he sees it as a pointless restriction. I think at some point he even says, like, I can't understand why anybody would ever not play a card that, they, that would make their cube more fun. I don't see why you would set some arbitrary restriction on your ability to create fun. I was curious what you thought of this video. To the same point we made about restrictions, I'm worried to just use the same phrase of saying restrictions breed creativity. It's more like restrictions uh, take a lot of pressure off of you so that you can actually just think clearly about things. And when you say you can build a cube, it can be anything, it can have any number of cards, it's so many decisions, it can be extremely daunting and hard to have a conversation when just anything is up in the air about, you know, fine-tuning details of things. Yeah. Uh, on the other hand, of course, I'm never going to tell somebody, like, cube should look this way, and if you're going to play magic, you should play it in this way. That That's absurd. I think there's something really important there, which is people say limitations breed creativity, but they very, very rarely explain why. And I think you touched on it in a, for a very good in a very good way there, which is that Restrictions don't breed creativity by inspiring you or sprinkling you with some magical creativity dust that now allows you to be smart and cool. What they do is, you know, if you... Another example I can think of is I've done some wood carving in my life, which is, you know, one of, one of my many lives. And one of the things that people really like about wood carving is, or stone carving, which I've also done, as opposed to wow. carving, say, like... Uh, a block of a block of plaster or something is that the wood and the stone both have a they exist in some form already like if you just pour some plaster into a rectangular prism mold and make like a plaster box then you can carve whatever you want out of that plaster box right that's just a, a blank slate plaster is way easier to carve than stone or wood so you can just do whatever you want but the reason that so many artists prefer to work with stone or wood is not just because of the quality of the end result but because of the process because the stone is already a shape it has a grain it has colorations and differences in the texture of different parts of the stone which is essentially a restriction the stone says it, you it cannot has a, the david inside of it it's not even that it's that you can't carve the stone in a certain way or it's it's much harder to carve the wood against the grain than it is to carve it with the grain and so what it actually does is it limits the number of choices you can possibly make and in doing so you can actually consider the range of choices and make the one that serves your vision whereas if you're starting with a block you better have a very, very, very good vision of what you want that block to be because there is nothing limiting your choices. You just can make whatever choices you want. And so in some ways, it's the most freeing thing imaginable. But in reality, it just means that, all right, if I'm an artist and I sit down to carve my plaster rectangles, then what makes this plaster rectangle I'm carving right now different from the plaster rectangle I carved last week or the one a year and a half ago? There's no texture to the experience. I think that the reason that restrictions breed creativity is because they oftentimes eliminate a whole suite of options that you couldn't possibly consider the full range of when making a creative decision. I mean, you're, you're kind of just rephrasing restrictions, though. Like, really, it comes down to, I think, two things. One is it alleviates decision paralysis by removing a lot of potential options. And then it also just forces you to approach a thing in a different way. So whereas if you're approaching your solid plaster block... If you're approaching it on Friday the same way you did on Tuesday, you're probably going to just carve the same thing. But if you say, well, this one has a different grain, it's going to force you to look at it in a different way and consider some options, which maybe you wouldn't have considered if you had the, the full breadth of all options. And oftentimes it forces you to try things, too. You say, oh, there's this cool vein in the rock here. Is there a way that I can carve this into a sweeping shape that holds out this cantilevered portion over here? And you might try something bold and daring that you otherwise wouldn't have tried in your plaster block because you didn't have something there to suggest that form to you. And so yeah, that's interesting. That almost feels less like a constraints breed creativity thing than just like having a nucleation site or a sort of seed idea. Well, but I think that's what restraints are for almost every cube designer, or the vast, vast majority of cube designers. If you That's look fair. at... Like, there's not much else to provide that kind of texture unless... I mean, obviously, you can say, like, I want to build the Enchantment Matters cube and, and start with these particular set of cards. Or, but you're just choosing a restriction for yourself. It's still a restriction, right? Sure, like you're, okay. You're saying, I want these cards to be playable, these cards to be good. I mean, you can frame anything as a restriction, but if you look at the breadth of cubes out there, 
there are a lot of cubes in the like very roughly power maxed legacy vintage category, right? Cubes that are playing to within some subjective evaluation, the most powerful cards within those environments to like push power level in one way or another and cutting cards that either think are too good or don't serve the gameplay goals. There's set-based cubes where the sort of nucleation point of the restriction there is a set or a plane. There are cubes based on rarity restrictions, your peasants, your paupers. These are the most common cubes we have. There's the desert cubes that you know have uh, all the lands in the actual packs or old border cubes where the restriction is only cards that were printed in old border. I think you need something like that in order to actually begin a project and sink your teeth into something. So to get back to Singleton, which is a very, very common, probably the most common restriction for cubes, I would guess, off the top of my head. I think that one is so common because of a couple of reasons. One, Singleton just is cool. (laughs) It's cool to only have one copy of a card, right? I remember when I first got into Magic, before I knew about Singleton formats, we were playing like kitchen table decks and stuff, and it was so frustrating to be like, well... I have this card that I like for my deck, but I need to get three more now for my deck to be any good because I only have one copy of this card I think is good in my off-meta modern deck or whatever. And it was just like a hassle. And then once you have four of them, they're not as special because now they're, now they're four of a kind. It's like it's not your one special card that you have some emotional bond to. So I really do think that one of the reasons for the popularity of Singleton is that it means that people can justify, you know, really scraping and scrapping and saving up to get one copy of that card they love that's really expensive, or to play that one copy of that card that uh, means something to them they have a connection to. I think it's very evocative to play singleton environments. That's how I felt when I first discovered Commander, and then later on Cube, and I think that's one of the reasons the limitation persists. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking a little bit about this earlier when we had discussed this topic, and uh, you just stole all of my points. I I think it's, like, I I have framed it in the past as saying, like, singleton is great for collecting, because... Right. The first get one the first is so much one, more valuable than the second, third, and fourth to you as, as a collector. But, but it's so much more deep and nuanced than that. Like, it really is, like you said, like, you open up a foil in a draft, and you're like, wow, I can, like, put this card in my cube now. And that's so much more exciting than being like, well, I want to play Constructed. I just need four of all these cards. My option is basically, I just have to go buy these cards. I'm not really going to realistically collect all these cards and from drafts and whatever and be able to play in a competitive Constructed meta. That's, that's really just not feasible. But in Singleton, whether you're playing Cube or Commander, that's absolutely practical. And it, it, it gives you that excitement that you want from opening cards like it it gives you the excitement when you're looking at someone else's trade binder and they have the one card you've been looking for for a while which you just don't get if it's like well you just have one i need a complete playset to complete my modern deck so this this experience is kind of over right it really is a binary too it's like i didn't have it and now i have it there's none of that in between purgatory of like i've got half of it and so i don't know whether to try and finish the set or trade them off for something else to complete another set of something there's none of that middle middle territory and and like you said as well it's so exciting to say well i saved up for or i you know went and sought out this one individual card once you have the one buying the second one is a lot less exciting so much less exciting i can say from experience it's it's not fun whenever i get a card that's like oh this is good in one of my decks and also a cube i'm like oh, i gotta get two of this card that's just doesn't feel fun anymore. It doesn't feel like a hunt. It just feels like commerce. It's, it's not right. as fun. Yes. Yeah, I mean, Singleton makes it feel like a collectible card game rather than just buying a game. I think it's a very important reason. I think it's one of the reasons why Singleton continues to persist throughout the cube world. But it's a very squishy reason that doesn't address the game design criticisms for not breaking Singleton. Let's go over our history of Singleton in our own cube. So... We both break Singleton in our main cubes for fixing lands. And I think there's a very common reason why the most breaking of Singleton I see is for fixing lands. And that is that when you're building a cube, a 360-card cube, most designers want to include more than 10 fixing lands, which means they're going to include multiple fixing lands for each guild that are essentially kind of fungible like you just know you need four or five or however many fixing land cycles you want and so you play the best ones and then you play the ones that aren't as good anymore because you ran out of the best ones is is what a lot of cube designers end up doing now that's obviously like some people include the creature lands because they like that texture they add to the environment or the cycling lands because of the extra versatility totally fine that's still completely valid i break singleton for shocks but i still include one of each fetch and i still have other land cycles to fill things out like the horizon land so it's all a delicate balance but ultimately at the end of the day i think the reason people 
break for fixing lands is that there is a natural ceiling. I, I'm, I'm, even if I were to include only shock lands or only shocks and fetches in my cube, I wouldn't put 200 of them in because that's just too many fixing lands for my cube. So there's a natural limiter there. There's still a restriction that is somewhat imposed by the game itself. Oh, you mean Whereas, not, not in terms of there's a ceiling uh, in the quality of fixing lands, but just that even if you sort of decide to splurge, you can only splurge so hard. Right, but what I more mean is that if I were to decide to just say, well, I'm including Volcanic Hammer and Fire Ambush and all these other cards that are just essentially slightly worse lightning strikes, why not just put in more lightning strikes? Now you have to actually answer the question for yourself. Or, how or many lightning know, strikes? even more directly, if you just say, well, I'm going to break Singleton for Lightning Bolt, how many lightning bolts is the right number of lightning bolts? Right, and then you have to answer that question for your environment, which we just talked about how it was not easy to even answer the question of is Arkham's Astrolabe or Sensei's Divining Top too good for my peasant cube? Much harder is the question, is four or seven or 11, like how many lightning bolts or lightning strikes is the right number for my cube for it to deliver on my gameplay goals? I so don't whereas think you're saying people question. are willing to break for fixing because there is kind of a natural restriction because people will say, you know, different people will say different things, but they will say, here is the number of uh, cycles of duels you should run for whatever size of cube. Right. Each individual designer has their number of cycles they want to run, and so it's a very low cost to break for that fixing lens because it's not going to... And this is something that was addressed in the video, this slippery slope argument of like, well, how many? Now just add more. And there was a lot of backlash within the community where people would say that it was a slippery slope or what would be there to stop me from running, say, 50 Black Lotus Lodi? Black Lodi? And I, I agree with the sentiment in the video that the slippery slope argument doesn't really have legs in the sense of you're not just going to now be required to put in 20 black lotuses in your queue because you're breaking singleton. You obviously don't have to. You can run as, as many of whatever cards as you think serve your goals. But answering that question is so far from trivial. It's a really, really, really difficult question to answer. And so I think we see a program for fixing lands because people have already answered that question for themselves. They already know how many fixing lands they want to run. And so they don't have to answer that question anew. They can just say, well... I'm just not going to include these tap lands. I'm going to include another set of shocks or whatever fits their cube design goals. And it's a relatively small and like-for-like uh, like upgrade. Whereas what's the right number of lightning bolts to serve my goals is a much harder upgrade. Yeah, and the, the texture a lot of the uh, sort of second tier of, of lands add to a game is, is not particularly interesting to me. Like, oh, I have a battle land and I have a check land and, oh, wait... Like, I have a my dual land. land, I just need to keep track of do I care about having two basics in play or another basic in my hand. Like, that's not really... Having those different effects in a cube is not actually adding to the fun. I agree completely. Totally, I totally agree with that. But is it more fun to have so many different burn spells? Well, so hold on a sec. So we'll, we'll get there. I have also designed other cubes that break singleton in different ways. Uh, the, the one I'll mention right now, just as a case study, is this tribal tribal cube I've been fiddling with ever since the beginner of Call Time spoiler season. And it leans into that tribal tribal theme that in Modern Horizons that you described so eloquently back in that episode where we talked about it, which is that you have a bunch of changelings and you have these narrow niche tribal payoffs or lords and you're able to play a deck that consists of a few different tribal payoffs, like your Aeola Queen of Bears and the King of the Pride, which is a cat payoff and a bear payoff. And then you have all your changelings to trigger both, and so you end up playing this tribal tribal deck. And I thought that was a really cool thing, and so I tried to build a cube around it, which I initially started as Singleton, except for fixing, which I break for immediately now whenever I start a new cube. And what I found was there just weren't enough changelings to get to the point where this kind of deck was really viable. And there was also, importantly, a big delta between the two places that they've printed Changelings in Magic's history, which is Modern Horizons, which is a very powerful set from a couple years ago, and Lorwyn, which was a set from 12 or 15 years ago that was significantly less powerful than Modern Magic R&D. And so all the Changelings from Lorwyn, pretty much, with only a few exceptions, are kind of non-starters in an environment where you're also playing the Changelings from Modern Horizons. So what I ended up doing is breaking Singleton for those changelings and it was very difficult i'm still not there i've very i've only played this cube very minimally but it's a very difficult question to answer how many changelings is the right number of changelings because the thing i found about breaking singleton and this is what i wanted to get to is that the other reason i think it's very prevalent in the cube design world is that the more you break singleton and this also includes 
virtually breaking Singleton, including fire ambush and volcanic volcanic hammer and all that kind of stuff, is in addition to lightning strike. The more you include cards that are essentially fungible, they're interchangeable. The fewer decisions you give your drafters, and therefore the more on rails your entire draft environment becomes a little bit. And you can take that to its logical conclusion and imagine a cube that only has like uh, you know multiple copies of like twelve different cards. And there's actually like a finite number of two-color decks you could possibly draft with different densities of these cards. And so you as the designer have to be damn sure that each of those two-color decks is viable and works. And so in the video where Jason mentions swapping out some of the dinkier aggro one-drops for Gravecrawlers... I first broke Singleton by replacing these boring linear black one-drops with Gravecrawlers. That's in some ways just... You didn't even, you were already breaking Singleton for fungible black aggro creatures, and now you just made it a different black aggro creature. Like, to me, that's a very insubstantial breaking of Singleton that doesn't actually begin to address the complexities involved with designing non-Singleton environments. Totally. I think that you're getting at something that's very important, which is when I'm designing a cube, or designing my main cube at least, like, this is a box of cards I want to get the maximum value out of. I want this to be as redraftable. I want to be able to open it up and play all kinds of different decks and get as much variation from my gameplay because that's what I enjoy from magic. So Singleton, in addition to, uh, you know, being great for collecting and rewarding when you open up packs, it's also just really fundamental to just wanting to get as much variation out of the decks as possible. I've felt more and more that there's a kind of fundamental divide in how some people think about their cubes where some people I think have a kind of exploratory mindset where their goal is, and they can have any kind of goal. It doesn't matter what their goal is, but their goal is to explore a space with a set of cards. And what that means, I think, is maybe having a higher tolerance for cards that might be a different power level or having a higher tolerance for polarizing cards and just kind of being resigned to saying, all right, well, I'll let people draft this and see what happens. And there is no wrong way to draft the queue. Whatever people do, they do. And I'll try and then look at the results and see what I can learn from that. Versus a much more kind of rigid prescriptive idea of what the viable decks in your cube are and designing with those in mind at all times and basically saying, well, if you're playing blue black in my cube, you better be playing ninjas because that's what this cube is about. It's about blue black ninjas. And so there's this mindset where if your drafters are playing blue black and they're not playing ninjas, they somehow messed up or didn't follow your clear signals or are drafting it wrong or whatever. And I think if you're more in that second mindset, you'll be pulled more to non-singleton because it gives you much greater control over your drafters because you give them fewer decisions. More of those decisions have been put off on you. Whereas my natural pull at all times is to give my drafters more decisions and to revel and delight in any time someone does something unexpected. I told the story of Daniel running Doomscar in his white-black aggro deck and then getting me with it in back-to-back games with uh, multiple cards that made his board indestructible, like Selfless Spirit. And is that what I intended when I put Selfless Spirit and Doomscar in? It's not what I was thinking of, certainly, but I am glad that those cards interact in that way, and I'm happy to include those cards so that that is one of the ways in which my cube can be played. And so if you are aiming for that other option, you want to give your drafters more decisions and see what they do with it, of course you want to play Singleton. You want them to have a decision to make between, do I take this card or that card? You don't want them to say, well, both these cards are Gravecrawler, so I guess I'm taking Gravecrawler. On, on the other hand, sometimes I do think you can have the reverse effect by breaking Singleton if it means you're bolstering uh, a particular archetype or strategy or whatever kind of deck that, that just wouldn't be viable without breaking Singleton. And so really you're saying like, okay, well, we have this cycling deck, but if it's really not viable without breaking Singleton, it's not actually a real decision that you're offering to your players. So potentially by breaking Singleton to add a couple more cards here and there, you can just enable even more options. That's true. I I totally agree with that, that I think sometimes breaking Singleton can make whole new decks appear where before there was no deck and cards are recontextualized, thus giving you like virtually more cards because now this one card that was previously only playable in this one place now has two homes and therefore it's kind of virtually two cards in the cube. Yeah, I mean, there's a difference between just looking at the cards and saying, well, how many literally unique combinations are there and and actually how many viable strategies are there that are going to appeal to and excite my players? I think one of the most common manifestations of this exploratory cube design too is a lot of the people that are designing cubes at the limits of power level within their restriction whether it be pauper peasant or vintage or whatever i think a lot of people are just like well 
I'm curious to know what is the most powerful deck I can draft. Like, what does the most powerful drafted environment within this set of restrictions look like? And so those players might see a new powerful card printed, and they might not like it. They might think, oh, gosh, true nemesis. I don't like that this card's not interactive. But in service of exploring what the most powerful drafted decks could possibly be, I'm going to include this card because it seems to me like it might be among this class of cards that are very powerful. There are plenty of cube designers working in that way, and that's totally valid. And that way of working is very much naturally inclined to Singleton, which is why I think we see so many of, so much of that in the, in the community. I just had a terrible idea. Great. Let's hear it. It's going to be very expensive. So I just wanted to say to the people that are asking, like, well, this is a slippery slope. Why not just put in a dozen Black Lotuses? And I wanted to say, well, sure, why not? Let's do it. If you think that Black Lotus is a fun magic card to play with, I personally do not. Uh, you can put in a dozen Black Lotuses in your cube. But also, what if we just replace the basic land box with just a big stack of Lotuses? That would be something. I think if we want to do a weird stipulation draft uh, sometime, just saying, like, tonight, this is the Lotus draft. Could be a fun time. Something I've considered doing before, which is in a vaguely related territory... A card I have thought a lot about for my cube is Lotus Petal. It's a card that fascinates me. It's just, you know, a zero mana artifact you can tap and sacrifice for a mana of any color. So pure tempo, tempo embodied, right? You're spending a whole card for just a single mana ahead of schedule. So that'll let you play your three drop on turn two or your two drop on turn one or your five drop on turn four, but it costs you a whole card to do so. So you better be getting a significant advantage by making that early play. And it's a card that I've wondered if it would work in my environment before. And I thought one of the most interesting ways to test that would have been just to say at the end of the draft, all right, everybody, you drafted your deck. You may now include as many copies of Lotus Petal as you think your deck wants. And I'm curious to know what kinds of numbers my, my drafters would land on for that. It would be weird. It's also funny what? to hear you say that because I, I look at uh, Lotus Petal and I'm like, oh, this is a cool synergy card that I can play with my Emery and my Psy. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a, that's a layer I, I, did not, I did not explain. But you're right, that's certainly there too. I, I wonder, I don't know, I wonder, how, ma how many Lotus Petals do you think you would play if you drafted, you know, classic green-white mid-range in my cube? How many Petals are you put in that deck, you think? Is green-white mid-range a, a deck in your cube? You, you, you've drafted it before. It's a great deck. You don't I've, like certain, I've certainly, I've certainly drafted the, the green-white O3 in your cube. Is that what you're referring to? <laughs> That was a long time ago. You should try green white now. It's, it's spicy. It gets the job done. Seven lotus petals? Does that sound like a good number? It depends how many planeswalkers I have. Like right? cut five. You, you have like probably three or four planeswalkers if you're playing green white midrange in my queue. Maybe even five if you got lucky. Yeah, stick a planeswalker turn two. Love it. I think I would play seven-ish lotus petals. Cutting like five lands and my two worst spells for seven lotus petals. See how that would go. Maybe even play more in aggro. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, to answer the question, should cubes be singleton? I mean, no, cubes shouldn't be anything. That's, that's not what cube is. Cubes should be whatever you want your cube to be, and that's the beauty of the environment. I think there are very good reasons why many, 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 many designers choose to follow singleton as a rule. And I actually think more people do it consciously than perhaps like unconsciously inherit it as some dogma of the environment, which seems to be the position of this video that... Most people that aren't breaking Singleton just haven't thought to not break Singleton. Actually, I think most players probably have thought about it and decided consciously not to. Yeah, I think it's a pretty reasonable approach to say, stick with the convention, stick with Singleton, because it does have all these benefits. And then if you see a real problem or a real opportunity for a new kind of archetype you're trying to support, then feel free. All this talk of Lotus Petal and Black Lotus, though, Anthony, is going to make me recount some research I've been doing this week. I have really fallen in love specifically in the Degenerate Micro Cube with Lion's Eye Diamond. This is a card that I'm just really enamored with right now because, I mean, I think most people know, but Lion's Eye Diamond is a zero mana artifact that you can sacrifice, discard your hand, and then, after that, add three mana of any one color to your mana pool. It's really cool. I'm really glad they finally printed this card, uh, which really, uh, I think, is going to make, finally, Bag of Holding relevant in constructed formats. I guess before I wax poetic about lion's eye diamond for a moment what do you think about lion's eye diamond how do you feel about this card uh i mean i feel like i still am a stone age like when was this printed 1994 95 96 i still look at it and i'm like this is a bad magic card discard my hand no way i don't want to do that these are all my favorite cards in my hand well it's funny so 
I went back to some of the earliest episodes of Drive to Work. Hi, Maro. To try and find a story about the design of Lion's Eye Diamond. And apparently, Charlie Catino, who has been working at Wizards since the very, very early days, since well before Mark Rosewater, is a big proponent of putting actively bad cards in sets, which is, frankly, not a design ethos we see manifested in modern set design. People still will give Wizards crap and say they're printing bad cards, but compared to what they did in 94, 95, 96, they're not printing bad cards anymore, friends. The cards they printed back then were, like, intentionally bad, almost as a joke. Like, isn't it funny we bothered to print this card? Uh, and just, like, as a weird kind of throwaway thing. So I mean, I, I personally love that. I wish we would see so much more of that. Unfortunately, I think we've seen a lot more attention paid to limited design, which overall I think is a net positive. But when you look at some of these old cards and you immediately are like, what is this card? Like, how do I make this work? Why does this exist? That's such an intriguing and awesome aspect of the game, which I, we really just don't see that much anymore. I agree. Though I have to say, like, my impression is that this card was, when it was printed, there was no way to make it work. There was no <laughs> answer. It wasn't like it was a little secret, secret, like, nugget and you could figure out how to make it work. It was meant to be bad intentionally. And it was. And players were like, this card's awful and I hate it. And you can even read a column of Mark Rosewater's from the early days where someone wrote him this hilariously disrespectful long letter about why Wizards is printing bad magic cards and it's a, it's a disgrace and offensive to players that spend their hard-earned money on a booster pack only to open a garbage card. Like, for example, Lion's Eye Diamond. This, I think this person says in the letter, like, can you ever possibly imagine any deck that would play Lion's Eye Diamond in it and be successful? It's impossible. I could forgive this if you were talking about cards like, for instance, Teferi's response. That card while weak, does have its uses in some sideboards. I have never in all my years seen anyone play a Lion's Eye Diamond for any reason. And of course, you know, Lion's Eye Diamond turned out a couple years later to be not just a powerful card, but an extraordinarily powerful card. Very, very potent build around. And so here's what I like about it. I like that it was designed kind of as a joke, as this actively bad card that was like, discard your hand, haha, now you don't have to spend this mana on. Uh, I guess you can use it for an activated ability or whatever. It's a callback to Lotus, which is the most powerful and iconic card in Magic's history in, in a lot of ways. But also, I also don't like the design of Black Lotus. Like, it's a cool icon, but I don't think it's fun to play with in any sense. So it's, it's a callback to this card that I like for history reasons, but don't want to play in my own environments. But because it's way, way, way worse, but still very, very good, it is playable in other environments. Lion's Eye Diamond is. And then in the Degenerate Microcube, it's been a ton of fun to play, and I keep finding little scenarios where it just ends up performing really, really well. I recently added Gusha's Scepter to the Degenerate Microcube, which is a, it's a zero mana artifact from Alliances that basically says you can tap it to exile a card from your hand under it, or you can tap it to take a card from exile under it and put it back in your hand. So you just can shuffle cards between being under Gusha's Scepter and being in your hand. And this was one of the early cards that was kind of messed up with Lion's Eye Diamond because you could put a card under it on turn one and then on turn two, you could crack your Lion's Eye Diamond and then afterwards put the card back in your hand and cast it with the mana from Lion's Eye Diamond. And so this is a combo that like was good for like a, a hot second there in Magic's history. But since then, Scepter, I think, has been woefully unplayable. And I'm so thrilled that this combo is now a thing again in my Degenerate Microcube, which I didn't consciously plant, right? I didn't even, I didn't think I want to make this, this, this combo playable, but it's just the way this cube plays out ends up having these weird little interactions from the early days of Magic that are still viable in, in fun ways. So I'm really kind of just enamored with Lion's Eye Diamond these days, and I wish it didn't cost a gazillion million dollars so more people could have them and play with them. Uh, yeah, sounds like Magic the Gathering. That's maybe your worst can response yet. What, what, you, do you think I'm actually going to make a hot take on the reserve list at this point? There are no more hot takes to be made. Oh, I wasn't looking for you to do that, no. Oh, okay. I have no desire to hot take it by the reserve list. I just I think it's a cool card. People should proxy it. How about that? Let's just say that. I All hate right. the word proxy. That's my hot take. Yeah, it's it's not a great word. People should take a sharpie and write lines eye diamond on a post-it note and stick it in a stick. Make stage. a little counterfeit for yourself. For well, gonna be honest. Explicitly let's not say counterfeit, because <laughs> that's the difference. We don't want to encourage counterfeiting. Proxying is fine though. But that's the problem, is proxying is not proxying. What what you mean? If you're just playing this is a different episode. 
Is your is your problem with the word proxy that some pedantic like, well, proxy actually means that it points to a different destination? Correct. What's yeah. your argument here? Yeah, I mean, you're saying like, if, if I was to proxy a card, it would mean like, yeah, I have my lion side diamond. It's in this perfect some kind of secure enclave, and I'm instead gonna play with this planes that says lion's eye diamond and i'll shuffle with that and it'll be fine you're not you're not proxying anything you're just you're just playing with the not a real magic card <laughs> one of my uh, one of my friends has a beautiful thought which i like which is you know the kind of thought you can only think when you're a person of somewhat reasonable financial privilege but their position is just that in order to try and stop themselves from wanting things and you know being desirous of buying new stuff for themselves they just like to adopt the mindset that I own everything in the world. I can have it whenever I want. It's just stored in storage. And in order to get it out, I have to pay some money to get it out of storage. And then I can put it back in storage to get some of that money back as like, you know, buying things and reselling them on eBay or whatever. And uh, just think about of magic cards, Anthony. We all own all of a lion's eye diamond. Somewhere there's a lion's eye diamond sitting in disuse. And that's the one that you're proxying if you, uh, if you write lion's eye diamond on, uh, on your pestermite. But please do not destroy a pestermite. That's a very cool card. Sure. All right, this has been Lucky Paper Radio. Thank you for tuning in. I wanted to give a quick shout-out to all of the great listeners that left us a review in response to my heartfelt plea for reviews last week on the show. So thank you to P.L. Lamascus, BBBDJ, Zaldanork, Boone Garrington, AirPower220, and Forest716, whose cube we just did a pack one pick one of. Thank you for the great reviews, everybody. I appreciate it. All of our music is produced by DJ James Nasty. All the magic cards are made by Mark Rosewater and Wizards of the Coast. Thank you for tuning in, and thank you, Anthony, for talking about magic with me. Thank you on my birthday for talking about magic with me. Oh, you did the callback. I didn't even have to do it. I was going to call back to it, but you got there. Snake tip. <laughs> <laughs>